So we're in Romans chapter 14. I just want to uh, thank you for not just your your coming on Sunday mornings, but uh, I can tell you I, I work hard at studying to preach, and I hope you work hard at listening. <laughs> and uh, that's not always easy because, you know, we don't do drama skits here or you, you show movie clips that keep people's attention. That's the age in which we live. It's preaching of an expository nature, and uh, it's easy to get lost sometimes. That said, I want to encourage you. The message is online, and somebody told me this recently. I listen to your message afterwards alone, and I pick up so much that I didn't pick up on Sunday morning, because there are distractions. So I encourage you to do that, and you, you will, you'll discover the same thing. So here in America, we enjoy our liberties such as free speech, amen? But you are not always free to speak out. If you do it during our worship service to cause a disturbance, you will be escorted out. There are limits to our liberties. The last three messages from Romans 14 have dealt with the matter of the proper exercise of Christian liberty. Now I want to draw your attention to the quote in the bulletin by Sam Storms. He says, Christian liberty is itself a good thing, but when wrongly used, that is, in defiance of love and in disregard for the conscience of the weaker brother, which we see here in Romans 14, it can bring disgrace on the gospel. And it can bring disgrace in other ways as well. 1 Peter 2.15 says, This is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now notice what he says, as free. That means you have liberty in Christ. Yet not using liberty as a cloak for wickedness, but as bondservants of God. In other words, a Christian should never hide behind a blanket of liberty to commit sin. We are not free to do that. An example would be thinking I have the liberty to enjoy going fishing outdoors in God's creation on Sunday and not come to church. That's just one example. Another would be when it comes to food, which Paul discusses here in Romans 14. He doesn't say everything about food. You can eat whatever food you enjoy eating. That's what we learn here. But you cannot make food an idol in your life. You cannot use your liberty as a cloak for sin. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me. That means all things that are not sinful, right? But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Listen, we must all recognize the power of sin to bring us under its control, its dominion. It's like diatomaceous earth. Right? Some of you gardeners know what diatomaceous earth is. Diatomaceous earth is called DE, and it's a powder. And it's made from the fossilized crustaceans called diatoms. And the sharp edges of, of these crustaceans cut into the insect's body while they walk across the diatomaceous earth and it causes them to die of dehydration. 
It's very effective. And I was thinking about that illustration. Boy, sin. You, you, you walk where you shouldn't be walking, and you don't know what it's doing. You do not know immediately all the damage that it's doing to you. And eventually it will destroy you. One thing we know is it will keep you from the word of God and you will spiritually dehydrate. It's lethal to the unbeliever, but it can control the believer. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled by wine, but be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, verses 1 through 12 in Romans 14 includes admonitions to the weak and the strong. The weak were immature in their faith. The strong were those who were stronger in their faith. Their conscience was well developed through the word of God. So Paul wrote in verse 1, Receive one who is weak in faith, he's immature, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Don't take them to task over everything. That could be interpreted to mean, except those whose faith is weak, and don't create distinctions based on secondary issues. They're not ready for that. They feel that they can't eat meat because they were, they were raised in a certain tradition, Jewish tradition. Don't push it on them. So I titled this message, When Right is Wrong. There is a time when right is wrong. And by application here in Romans 14 and also in 1 Corinthians 8, it means that although a Christian understands that he has the right to do certain things, like eating meat or not observing special days required by Old Testament law, not issues in our day, maybe it would be watching a certain movie or something similar to that, listening to a certain type of music. So even though you have the right, the exercise of that right would be wrong if it harms another brother or sister in Christ. Verses 13 through 21 puts the emphasis on the strong. And really what it's saying is that the strong must allow the weak time to mature in their faith. So here's the question then. How much time? Right? How much time do you, do you, do you give the weak brother to mature a little bit before you talk to him about certain things? Actually, there's no set time limit. And it takes wisdom to determine that. But I will say this, if a weak brother remains weak for a prolonged period of time, the strong may not have to go on limiting his liberty in an area not forbidden by Scripture. In other words, there is a point at which the, the weak cannot be nursed along. We, can, we try to bring people up, mature them in the faith, but we can't always treat them like spiritual infants. We do have the expectation of growth because God do, does. They need to grow up. But before that point is reached, we must be careful of how we look upon a weaker brother or sister. So Paul says in verse 11 here in Romans 14, Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? Look down on him. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's the Lord of all, right? For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Those are quotations from Isaiah. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And that's not, not, a, not a judgment on our for salvation, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. It's a judgment of our works as believers. There was an English actor and dramatist, and he uttered the following quote in 1716. "'Tis impossible to be certain of anything but death and taxes.'" 
That's a long time ago that was said. It's been quoted ever since. It's impossible to be certain of anything but death and taxes, and I'm certain that he was wrong about that. All right? There is a generation which will not experience death. That's the generation of Christians who are living when Jesus returns at the rapture, and I'm certain about many other things in this life and what comes after. We could be certain about the things that God has revealed to us. And one of them is the time when Christians will give an account to Jesus at the Bema seat of Christ. And we looked at that last week in more depth. Thank God, as I said, it's not a judgment on our sins because Christ took the judgment of our sins upon himself. It's the judgment of the believer's works. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are confident, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We're going to experience that judgment seat of Christ, of our works. And that is the moment when believers should be looking, looking, we're looking forward to that. Being with the Lord, whatever else are you, what, what else are you looking for? What's your ultimate aspiration in life? Psalm 94, 39, 4 says, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days? That I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as a handbreadth and my ages as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Every man at his best is just a vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. Don't we do that? Oh, we're so busy we can't keep up with the things we, we, we have you know, in front of us. We certainly don't have time for the Lord. Getting serious about our faith. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? Psalm 39, 7. And he answers it. My hope is in you. That's what I'm waiting for. So you go back to Romans 14. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all be pure appear before the judgment of seed of Christ that we may one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done whether good or bad that means useless didn't didn't glorify Christ at all all that you poured your life into is just going to be burnt up because it didn't bring any glory to Jesus Christ it's just temporary maybe gave you a temporary satisfaction at best met some needs so because of the inevitability of standing before Christ at the judgment See, Paul says, be careful of judging others. God is the ultimate judge, not you or I. So he says in verse 13 then, these commands, therefore let us not judge, that's the same word as in verse 11, don't let us judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block, that's a proskoma in the Greek, or to cause a fall, that's a scandalon. In the Greek, we get our English word scandal from that. In our brother's way. So don't condemn your brother, he says in verse, this verse. And he says, and do not place a stumbling block or other occasion to fall in the way of his spiritual growth. Now the words judge in these, these verses I read and resolve in verse 13 are the same Greek word, krino, judge and resolve. So it reads something like this. Listen up. It reads something like this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on anyone anymore, but let us come to this verdict. 
That's what a judgment is. It's a verdict. Be resolved in your mind not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in your brother's way. Stumbling block, I mentioned the word proscoma, means exactly that. It's an obstacle that can trip you up. It's like the toy that your, your son or daughter left in, in, in the, on the floor and you tripped over it. And then the other word that he uses is scandalon. And this means a cause to fall. And it comes from a word referring to the stick that caused a snare, a trap to spring. And then metaphorically for anything, any object which would cause someone to fall. So basically these two words, he's saying the same thing. Do not be the reason for your brother to fall spiritually or your sister. Don't spring the trap that your brother falls in that's going to harm him. What did the Jews stumble over? What was the scandal for them? It was Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.22 The Jews request the sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and there's your word, scandal on. A scandal. And to the Greeks, foolishness. So then Paul gives a definitive word about food in verse 14, and he says that no food is spiritually or morally unclean by its nature because Jesus pronounced all foods clean. And that's what he said, and just real quickly, in Mark chapter 17, Verse or Mark chapter 7, verse 14. We looked at this before, where Jesus says in verse 14, When he called all the multitude himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. Okay, work hard at listening. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he entered a house away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he said unto them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever a man enters a man from outside cannot defile him? You could eat meat, you could eat vegetables, you could eat seafood, you could eat whatever you want. You could eat bugs if you want to eat them. It's going to have no spiritual impact on your life. It is not going to defile you in any way. Because it does not enter his heart, but the stomach, and then it's eliminated. And then it says here, thus purifying all foods. That's Mark's editorial comment. It's been questioned by some, but there are many old and reliable manuscripts that contain that sentence. And the, the key word, katharidzon, uh, which means unclean. I'll put a, just a little picture up here. And these are some of the, the manuscript evidence for that reading. Thus he declared all foods clean. There are more than this. But uh, Sinaiticus right here by that little symbol that you see, 4th century, so that's a very early manuscript. Alexandrius, again, designated, if you know anything about Bible manuscripts, by the capital letter A, 5th century. Vaticanus, B, that's another one. These are almost complete portions of complete copies of the New Testament scriptures, fourth century, and then these others. And you can get into a long list of you know major and minor manuscripts. But Bruce Metzger, the recognized scholar of textual criticism in the modern era, wrote the overwhelming weight of manuscript evidence supports the reading Katharizon. 
The difficulty of construing this word in the sentence prompted copyists to attempt various corrections and basically to eliminate it. But it's, it's valid. Jesus said it. He declared all foods clean. Everything clean. So if you reject certain foods for health concerns, that is your personal decision. But you cannot impose upon it on another Christian's conscience by, t- by appealing to laws that do not apply to them. And like that's what a lot of the Seventh-day Adventists do. They appeal to Old Testament laws. And a lot of people do that with questionable things. Should Christians have a cat tattoo? Don't, don't answer. Chapter and verse, please. Is it good to have crash tat- tattoos? And Nah, probably later on you're going to regret doing that. But I saw the story of a woman who lost her mother and her sister to a murderer. And she tattooed two butterflies on her hand. Beautiful butterflies. Because she says, every time I look at those butterflies, I think of my mother and my sister. Is that wrong? Who's going to condemn her for that? Who's going to cast the first stone? Right? So people will go, oh, it says in Leviticus, I think it's 7, 18, you're not to mark your body. That's Old Testament law. You cannot take that and apply that to a believer today. Just like you can't apply food laws today. So you need to be really careful when quoting the Old Testament and trying to impose that upon people today. Now again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good idea to go get tattoos. That's just one example. You could do it with music. You need to be careful. We have high music standards. You need to be careful how far you're going to push that on somebody else because you, quote, understand more than they do about music or whatever else it is. So what Jesus is saying here is that he pronounced all food clean. So the strong believer who believed he could eat all kinds of meat, he was in the right. He knew Jesus pronounced all foods clean. He could eat all the meat in the world that he wanted to eat. Even, even as it says in 1 Corinthians 8, meat sacrificed to idols that came from pagan temples. But he could not use his liberty in such a way that would harm a fellow Christian in their spiritual life. That's when being right is wrong, abusing your liberty. The weaker brother may consider something clean, meat, according to Jesus, unclean. And that's what Paul says in verse 14b. It's clean. It's clean in and of itself by its nature. There's no spiritual value to food or meat or vegetables. But to him who considers it, and this is an interesting word, it's logizomai in the Greek. We get our word logarithm from it. So it has to do with the idea of, here's this weaker brother. He's weak in his faith. He's calculating these things in his mind. He's, he's reasoning according to the limitations of his knowledge, and he comes to the conclusion that this thing is unclean. Now, it's not unclean of itself. It's unclean because he's reasoned it to be unclean because he's immature in the faith. So therefore, to him, it is unclean. He's computed it. He's calculated it. He's come to the wrong conclusion. But he doesn't understand that yet. So you respect that. He's unclean. I mean, it's unclean to him. and You don't push it on him. Comparison to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we, have, we all have knowledge. He's speaking to the mature concerning these things. 
the, the Corinthians worshipped all kind of idols. And Paul's basically saying, idols are worthless. There's no life in them. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're demons, really, because they're worshiping false gods, you know, under the pretense of these idols and so forth. But they're nothing. But the, but the Christians, who be, people who became, you know, new believers, they knew that those, the meat in those temples were sacrificed to idols, and then the meat went on sale in the, in the food market the next day, and they didn't think they could eat that meat at all because it had been sacrificed to idols. And the argument is there's nothing wrong with it. You can go eat all you want. But if you're, it's going to offend your brother, don't. Don't. Don't do it for their sake. So Paul says, concerning things offered idols, we know that we all have knowledge concerning those things. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. In other words, the strong brethren advanced in doctrine, knew the idols were nothing, knew that the meat sacrificed to idols was still good meat, but it had to be sensitive to others. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. They are weak, and we need to understand that. For some with consciousness of the idol, maybe they worshipped it at one time, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. You've caused them spiritual harm that they weren't ready for. To that person, it was unclean. So then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food does not commend us to God, Right? For neither if we eat are the better, nor if we don't eat are we worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. So he says this, For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, you're mature, you could eat whatever you want, will not the conscience of him who is weak be, be emboldened to eat it? And he'd be violating his conscience at that point. And because of your knowledge, will your weak brother perish for whom Christ died? We'll talk about that in a minute. But when thus you sin against your brethren and, and you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You think you're ultimately just hurting your brother, maybe not intentionally, but you're going to show him how much you know and how much he doesn't know. You're, you're hurting Christ. You're doing that against Christ. Therefore, if food, Paul, Paul says, makes my brother stumble, I, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. What a statement. Paul says, if I'm going to do, do something completely that I have the liberty to do, like eat meat, I'm going to forego it. If it's going to make you stumble, I'll never, I'll never eat meat again, is what he's saying. You know what that is? That's the law of love. That's the law of love. And that's what we find in, find in Romans 14. Do not harm Bring no harm to a brother. Follow the law of love. He says in verse 15 of Romans 14, Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. You may, you may be really proving your point, but you're not walking in love. You know why? Because love edifies, the scripture says. It builds up. It never tears down and destroys. Love doesn't do that. That's the work of the flesh, not the work of the spirit. So even when we must say hard things or address tough issues, we must do it in love. 1 Timothy 2.23, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not strive, quarrel, 
but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. I told Marie today, you know, don't get into disputes with people. I don't know if you saw what happened. It was in the news. not quite sure where it was. But a young lady, you know, just going to school and everything, a young woman, she goes out into a parking lot and she gets into dispute with this other woman. It happened to be a black woman. I'm not picking on it. It happened to be a black woman carrying a gun illegally. And then finally, this, this young girl decides to walk away. Oh, no, I'm just not going to go anywhere arguing with them over whatever it was. And this other girl turns around, turns toward her and shoots her in the back and kills her while she's walking away. And I told him, right, that's the world we live in. Don't give somebody a dirty look over a parking spot. Let them have it. If somebody cuts you off on the road, don't give them a dirty look. Just keep driving. Look away from them. Don't argue. Don't look for a fight because you're going to find one with the wrong person. You eventually will. And as Christians, we're not to get into that kind of stuff anyway, right? We're not to, we're not to generate opposition or strife. We're to represent Christ. We're servants of the Lord. So he says here, Be gentle all men, able to teach patience and humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Now, when, when Paul says, they're grieved, don't grieve them. It's a very strong word. Matthew 19, 20, the young man said to him, you know, the rich man's story, all these things I've kept from my youth when, G, when you know, he wanted to know, Jesus wanted to know what he had to do to receive, to, he wanted to know what, what he had to do to receive the, the kingdom of, of God. And, and, and Jesus pointed to the law and he said, I've done all that. And then he goes, what, what do I still lack? And Jesus says, well, if you want to be perfect, Go sell what you have, give to the poor, and then you're going to have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Give it all up. When the young man heard that saying, he went away what? Grieved. Sorrowful, the scripture says. That's the intensity of that word. For he had great possessions. Matthew 17, 22. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and the third day he'll be raised up. And they were exceedingly grieved, sorrowful. So every word's found in Scripture, it's an intense word. You don't want to bring grief to somebody. Sometimes we do not think, maybe a lot of times, about what impact our words or our actions will have on other people. We just open our mouths. Or we just do something quickly. Love means we speak or we think before we speak or act. And how much hurt and division could be avoided in a church or in your home if you did that? If you would just think and hold your thoughts in and not, not, not let it out at another person. You might think it's, it's a good time to inform someone of their errors, but in fact, it may not be the right time. So don't try to press your point. They may, t- they may need time to grow before you attempt to straighten them out. Right? James 1.19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. What does it say? Slow to speak. Slow to wrath. Don't, don't get into a verbal wrestling match with somebody. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You're just going to turn the heat up. That's all you're going to do. You're never going to turn the heat down in an argument. You're always going to turn it up. Thank you, brother. 
Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be, what? With grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And then Paul says this, we don't want to do this, we don't want to grieve him, because he says in the latter part of verse 15, do not destroy with food the one for whom Christ died. You're going to use your liberty as you choose and you're going to destroy the one for whom Christ died? In 1 Corinthians 8, 11, he says, because of, of your superior knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? The same thing. And really, what, what he's saying here is, if Jesus was willing to give up his life for the sake of that brother, are you not willing to give up your cheeseburger? Or whatever else it happens to be. If Christ poured it all out, gave everything up for that brother to forgive him of his sins and grant him eternal life, what are you willing to sacrifice for him? What are you willing to give up for them? Now, the, the word destroy here in the Greek often has the meaning of spiritual death. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not, same Greek word, be destroyed, but have everlasting life. So it can and often is used in that sense, particularly by Paul when he uses it with a direct object. Don't destroy your brother for whom Christ died. There are a few exceptions. But it also has the meaning of a more general term that's used for death or for ruining something. Ruining something. In 2 John 8, it means to suffer loss. Same word. 2 John 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose. Same Greek word, destroy those things we worked for. But that we may receive a full reward. Now I want to say this. We can cause a fellow believer to stumble and take a serious fall that brings him great damage spiritually, causes him severe grief, a loss of his peace, feeling secure in Christ, a loss of his fellowship in the church, separation from the koinonia, the koinonia, the church. And let me just say this to you. This is and add on a little bit, but it's still within the context of what I want to say. Regular fellowship with a believing community is a sign of saving faith. It's not a guarantee of saving faith, right? You can come to church all your life and be unsaved. Just because a person goes to church doesn't make them a Christian. No more than sitting in your garage will make you an automobile. But it is a sign of saving faith. Christians are to be baptized into the church body. They are taken into the membership of the church. They profess allegiance to the doctrines and standards of the church, which Paul says the local church is the pillar and the ground of truth. 
So if you separate yourself from a fellowship, maybe you got offended as a weaker brother. I'm never going to that church again. And you end up never going to any church again. You've separated yourself from the pillar and the ground of truth. Who's going to get hurt? You, right? Matter of fact, the Bible says if a, if a professing Christian sins seriously without repentance, they are to be put out of the church and they are to be regarded as a heathen. An unbeliever, Matthew 18. Throughout church history, attendance and fellowship with the Christian community was mandatory, not optional. And those who quit attending without, God, without good cause were not considered true believers and they were excommunicated from the body. Excommunication, excommunicating someone who has completely stopped attending church is in effect giving them what they asked for. That's a good statement. When the church takes that decision to excommunicate someone for a lack of faithful attendance to the church, they're giving them what they want. They shouldn't complain. They don't want anything to do with the church. They're putting, so they're formally putting them out of the church. And I'll just say this. Irregular attendance is a step toward not attending church altogether. That's why God instituted the local church. One pastor wrote, I've met dozens and dozens of professing Christians who never or sparingly attend church. Their lives are an experiment in spiritual subsistence farming. <laughs> they're not living in open immorality, but their confidence in their own profession of faith wavers by the day. As their last time regularly in communion with God, under the preaching of His Word, and with His people, floats further and further away. There's no connection to the institution that God ordained for their spiritual welfare and the welfare of their families. And listen, listen. if you're not a regular attendant, you say, well, I'm, I'm, I won't pay that price. What about your children? What price will your children pay for the inconsistencies of your Christian life? Good question, isn't it? They learn by example. You bet they do. So that's why Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Listen, is the day of Christ appearing for us is it, is it further away or is it nearer than it's ever been? It's nearer than it's ever been. Right? We live in a really, really, a, wor a world that's bad and getting much worse every day. So we ought to be drawn all the nearer to a body of believers who love God and love God's word. And they're going to encourage us and build us up in the faith. And maybe you don't see eye to eye with it on them with everything but you love them as your brother and sister in Christ. And you realize that, you know, when God called an ecclesia, a called out people, a church, uh, he, he, made it, he, made this, he made it up of people who are all imperfect. They're all sinners. Every one of us. So destroying the faith of those weak in the faith, here's my point, may push them out of the church. 
And they lose fellowship with the church. They lose the opportunity to grow, the opportunity to serve, and many other blessings. It can do serious spiritual damage to them. Now, I don't think it means they lose their salvation because, you know, you, you didn't show Christian love toward a brother and he got offended and he left and you don't want to destroy the one, Paul says, whom, for whom Christ died. I don't believe in the, that in the light of all that the New Testament teaches about our position in Christ. Jude simply says, verse 1, we're preserved in him. So verse 15, about destroying your brother here, is not an unshakable proof text for saying the Christian can lose his salvation. Paul has already made his case in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is what? In Christ Jesus. And in verse 4, speaking of not judging another man's servant, what did he say? God is able to make them stand, right? So I think it could be speaking of bringing great spiritual harm and ruin to a brother, using hyperbole, destroying him but not to the point of losing their salvation. So imagine watching one boxer, and you've probably seen this, although it's such a violent sport, absolutely giving another a beating. And, and you are asked, well, what did you think of the fight last night? And, and you say, man, he destroyed him. Right? We do that all the time. You know, the, whoever it is, one football team destroyed another football. Well, they didn't literally. It's using hyperbole. It's using a figure of speech meaning that guy took a real beating or that team got a real beating. The Bible is clear about the security of the believer. You, never, you don't want to do anything that's going to just grieve or cause great spiritual harm to another brother for whom Christ died. But the Bible is clear about the security of the believer. I've never doubted that. Hebrews 7.23, watch this. We're almost done. Thank you for your attention. There were many priests in the Old Testament because they were prevented by death from continuing. Jesus had, a, they had the priest after priest after priest, but Jesus has a non-transferable priesthood, and this is what it says. But he, because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Can't be transferred to another person. Therefore, watch, he is able to save to the uttermost what does that mean? Completely or perfectly. Those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, this is beautiful verse. If you are a true born-again Christian, your salvation is guaranteed by two things. Keep that verse up there in those passages. Think about this. What he's saying is... <laughs> He's going to save you to the uttermost. Your salvation is guaranteed on the basis of the perfection and the permanence of Christ's priesthood. And secondly, the power of Christ's intercessory prayer. Do you know any power on earth greater than that? No. And that's why Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. He is the perfect priest, the perfect intercessor, and he prays for us. How powerful are the prayers of Christ for his own. Jesus told Peter, Satan desired to have him and sift him like wheat to ruin him, to destroy him. What did Jesus say? But I have prayed for you. 
And after you go through this trial and testing and your faith is weak, strengthen your brother. Really powerful verse. There's another one. 1 Peter 1, 1, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now watch this. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in his last time. So here's what Peter is saying. God guarantees the inheritance of those who have put their faith in Christ. It is reserved in heaven for you and I guarantee you no one can take it or touch it. They would have to go through Christ to do that. You belong to him. You are his possession. So their security is guaranteed by the believer's inheritance reserved in heaven. And then God secures not only the inheritance, but the heir to the inheritance. Hallelujah. We are kept by the power of God. Do you know anything more powerful than the prayers of Jesus? No. Do you know anything more powerful than the power of God? No. And that's why Jesus can say, you are secure in my hand and no one can take you out and you're secure in the Father's hand. Can't take him out of the Father's hand. Brothers and sisters, thank God for that. Because if it wasn't the case, we'd all walk. God is able to make you stand. You can't stand on your own. But hallelujah, God is able to make you stand.